Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the first episode of our new season of the Birth Lounge podcast. Woo! We are back in full force. I'm so excited for our new season. So this season is a little different than previous seasons. Uh, Traditionally, I have always chosen the topics and the guests for the podcast. I started this podcast a number of years ago in 2018, and... um, It began as a passion project where I wanted to use it to enhance my own learning. I wanted to highlight the voices that were really being change makers in women's health. And I wanted to expand access to information or of information to the people that needed it, to women and pregnant people and people that were postpartum, people who were having babies, growing their families, who had uteruses, who menstruated. I wanted to connect those people with the information that they needed to live a good and wholesome life, to live healthy, to understand their options, to explore alternatives to uh, things that maybe they had never heard of. And so I am blown away by all the support by the podcast constantly. And um, the number of downloads that we have reached is absolutely insane. And the number of countries that we've reached and the the amount of listeners and, and all of these things are really great. And I'm super, super grateful. Um, but I think what I am most grateful for is the way that you guys all share the podcast. Um, I am so grateful that you take this information and you take advantage of it, but then you share it with people in your life that you love and care about and you want them to have this same access um, so that they can also live wholesome lives. So this season comes from actually all of your requests. So what we did this season was we asked you guys what y'all wanted to see on the podcast. We took the topics that you had submitted, and then I went out and found the experts that I wanted to bring on the podcast. So this season is like extra jazzed up. If you were one of the people that submitted a topic to us, 
stay tuned because I think that we covered every single one of the submissions that we got. So if you submitted a topic that you wanted to hear, keep listening each week and you are bound to run into the topic that you wanted to listen to. All right, you guys, thanks so much for being here with me as always. I'm very excited for this new uh, season. It's going to be such an adventure, but I am very, very grateful for you that you keep showing up week after week, month after month, year after year, supporting me, listening to the experts that I have on the show, expanding your own knowledge and sharing this with the people that you love. So thank you. All right, you guys. Without further ado, let's jump into today's topic, which is four induction methods that probably no one has told you about. I am so involved in getting the word out on how we can have positive inductions because here's the thing, they're not going anywhere. Some people want an induction. Sometimes we need inductions. Sometimes it's safer to have an induction than it is to let your pregnancy go. And so in those cases, we need to know how to be able to do it safely. We need to know how to do it in a way that mimics what the body would naturally do so that the person having that induction can have a a positive experience, can have an induction that is empowering and that they love and results in the outcomes that they had hoped for um, or as closely as possible without that iatrogenic trauma, that trauma that comes from things that we did. We want to make sure that when we're intervening and when we're doing things in labor, they're really necessary and that they're evidence-based, right? All right. Before we dive too far in, I want to make sure that you understand what I talk about today is not going to be appropriate for everybody, and it doesn't mean that it's your only options either. You should choose what is best for you. When it comes to inductions, you want to think very heavily about this conversation because it does have the potential to impact the outcomes of your labor. So if you are toying around with an elective 39-week induction, make sure you know all the pros and cons. If you are um, needing a medical induction, make sure you understand all of your options and uh, the methods that can be used so that you can really set it up to be your individual type of equation that's going to get you your preferences met and heard and respected and all that jazz, okay? All right, Um, today we're going to talk about four options available to you when it comes to induction. Now, one thing to keep in mind in this conversation is that there is a difference between evidence-based care and hospital policy or provider preference. And sometimes it can be, sometimes they are the same, sometimes. Hospital policy and provider preference is also evidence-based, but sometimes, I would even venture to say many times, what is evidence-based may not always align with what your provider's preference is or what the hospital policy says. And so you're going to need to discern between those two as that client, um, as the person who has experienced and as that person who is going to go through with this labor, Right. Um, so just make sure that we we keep that in mind. Also, just because one option is evidence-based doesn't mean that's your only evidence-based option. Sometimes you have multiple evidence-based options in order to help you achieve your goal. And I think that induction is 
one of those places. Now, I've already talked about the Bishop score on the podcast in a previous episode, so make sure that you go back and you listen to that so that you can understand why it is so important that you get your Bishop score. How are we going to obtain this score, and what does it mean for your induction? Quick rundown, we want to get a Bishop score before you start your induction so that we understand what your cervix is doing so that we know how to best induce you. Now, the things I'm talking about today is a lot of ripeners. We are talking about the beginning stages of labor slash induction where your cervix is going from really thick, like a thick piece of like pork belly all the way down to like pantyhose thin. Um, And that's called effacement. That dilation is the opening from one centimeter, zero centimeters to 10 centimeters. But Effacement has to happen first before your body can open up. It has to thin out so that that dilation can actually happen. And that's what we're talking about today. For a lot of people, when they go in for an induction, they are just offered Pitocin. And I want you to know that your induction can start with a couple of methods before that. Now, I have a whole training on finding your induction equation. It's called your induction equation. So if you just Google the birth lounge, your induction equation, it will pop up. Um, It's a free class. I talked to you about how do you stack all of the induction methods that are available to achieve your specific goals. It actually is an equation. You have many options. We can stack them. Some of them can't be stacked in certain orders, but some can, you need to know all of that so that no matter what happens in your labor, you know which option is best for you and what you want to choose. Now, before we get that dilation and we start that Pitocin, there are things that we can do. And that's what we're going to talk about today, okay? These four options for me, after seeing this research, could be the key on a bigger scale to help reduce our number of cesareans that we see as a result of unnecessary inductions for two reasons. Um, First, I think it provides better outcomes and you're going to see that through the data. And then second, I think if we're choosing unnecessary inductions, this is only going to further help nudge your body into labor, which is essentially what an elective induction is. We're nudging your body to do something that's not quite ready to do. Um, A medical induction is the same thing, but elective is when you choose it without a medical necessity. And a medical induction is when you choose it because medically that is what is recommended, right? Um, I also have a cheat sheet of understanding medical inductions versus not medical inductions, elective inductions. Um, You can Google that, the birth lounge induction cheat sheet, and it will give you all of the evidence-based reasons that we might need to induce you or that your provider might um, suggest induction. And then all of the non-evidence-based, I call them bogus in the guide, bogus reasons of why um, a provider might suggest you get an induction where there's no evidence behind uh, inducing for that reason. One of those would be gestational age, right? Going past your due date. that 39-week induction, the arrived child. Okay, let's dive right into it. So up first is oral mesoprostol. Now, mesoprostol is a prostaglandin. It does exactly what I was talking about, thinning out your cervix. Um, And this is a really interesting one because a lot of times in the hospital, vaginal miso is given. 
And so I looked at a Cochrane review. Now, granted, it's from 2014, so it's a little bit old. It's about nine years old at the recording of this podcast. Um, but it's really fascinating because oral miso works really, really well. It's very effective. And um, this Cochrane review showed that it actually may reduce your risk of a C-section. The problem, though, is we are not quite sure the dose. Um, and I personally think that's because every person is going to need a little bit of a different dose based on that starting point, that Bishop score that we just talked about, right? Now, this Cochrane review also found that oral miso um, resulted in fewer C-sections um, than just using Pitocin. So that's something to consider to talk to your doctor about is if you're going to have Pitocin, would it be appropriate for you to also have oral miso? Now, this makes sense to me because, you know, we're trying to mimic that natural labor progress, that progression of natural hormones, that hormonal cocktail that your brain would naturally do when you're in labor, we want to mimic that as closely as possible. And so when we get spontaneous, unaugmented labors, your body is working with both prostaglandins and oxytocin. And so if we can mimic that together, the prostaglandins and the pitocin, that makes sense to me that you would get better results because we're more closely mimicking what the human body would do. Um, as always, I'm going to link all of these for you um, so that you can see this research yourself, so that you can take it into your provider and have this discussion. Um, but just a really neat um, Cochrane review of oral miso showing that if you have the option between oral and vaginal, um, consider oral. We also see lower rates of um, uterine hyperstimulation with that oral miso as well. All right. Next is going to be outpatient ripeners. Now, really interesting note, I just attended the A1 conference for um, obstetric and neonatal nurses. Um, as a doula, I went as a doula. I'm not a nurse. Um, and I wanted to learn alongside nurses what, um, you know, what is the most up-to-date evidence-based information so that I could help bridge that gap between our clients and their L&D staff and to help um, everyone kind of be on the same page, right? Now, I was looking at a 2023 meta-analysis, um, and it did show that vaginal miso, so swapping over to vaginal miso, is better for outpatient. Um, it included, this meta-analysis included 42 randomized control trials, uh, including more than 6,000 participants. So, um, pretty good-sized study there. They assessed the following outcomes. Time from intervention to delivery. C-section rates, changes in Bishop score, need for additional ripening methods, incidence of APGAR scores that were lower than seven at five minutes, and uterine hyperstimulation. Now, the vaginal miso was the most effective in reducing the time from intervention to delivery without increasing the odds of C-section. Now, that is huge, okay? The need for additional ripening methods also... Uh, did not increase, nor did the incidence of low APGAR or uterine hyperstimulation. They did note, though, that mifepristone was associated with the lowest odds of C-section delivery. And if you are a U.S. listener, 
that is one of the medications that is being heavily regulated and sometimes even restricted uh, right now in our country. So that's really something to have your ears perk up about. This meta-analysis also said that when balancing efficacy and safety, vaginal mesoprostol of 25 micrograms represents the best method of outpatient cervical ripening. So you've got information about oral meso, and then we shift over to this outpatient ripening, and they're talking about vaginal meso. So depending on what your goals would be, and maybe it's a discussion to have with your provider, if you have goals to leave, is there an option to do vaginal or oral, or do we just stick with that vaginal because that is what has been studied, right? Now, another topic talking about outpatient cervical ripening for induction is the OBG project. And I love this. It reminds me very much of the up-to-date website. Um, but they have an article in there, and it looked at 282 women in each group, both in the inpatient and the outpatient. And surprisingly enough, 85%, roughly, of each group had vaginal delivery. So that is awesome. Now, the outpatient group, very, very uh, cool finding here. The outpatient group experienced significantly reduced time from hospital admission to delivery and total hospital stay. So if you were an outpatient ripener in that group, you had about 12.8 hours from the time that you checked into the hospital to delivery. If you were inpatient, you had about 20.6 hours, and that makes sense. The hours, you can see, so let's assume that the 20 from that inpatient, that eight of those were done at home with that ripener, that would have knocked it off, right? Um, so you just have a shorter stay in the hospital is essentially what this means from start to finish, not only during your labor, but also you know, the, the throughout postpartum. So it's that total stay. Um, if you did a ripener, if you were in that out of hospital ripener outpatient, you had about a two-day stay from start to finish. And if you were inpatient, it was about a three-day stay. Again, that eight hours makes sense. You're knocking off a whole day of being at the hospital. A lot of that is done in that early labor time where you are still at home. All right. Okay. This OBG project also said that there was no significant differences between the groups in neonatal or maternal outcomes. And there was one patient undergoing outpatient induction that actually had an unplanned home birth. So her baby came faster, it sounds like to me, uh, faster than they could get back to the hospital. They did end it with larger studies are needed that this was too small of a study to be sure about adverse outcomes, but none were observed. And this is where you might consider the risk of what you're comfortable with versus what your provider is comfortable with versus what is that evidence-based care, right? It is evidence-based to use out-of-hospital MISO it comes with risk, as does everything, as does every choice has risk. But it may not be your provider's preference or the hospital's preference to let you leave once you've had that vaginal miso administered, right? So that's where that kind of comes into play. 
All right, moving on to our next article in the category of outpatient ripeners, meaning that you go into the hospital, you get a cervical ripener that is going to thin out your cervix, and then you go home to let that cervical ripener do its thing and hopefully go into early labor at home, keeping you at home as long as possible, which we know is... Um, one of the tips that ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, recommends and endorses for lowering the risk of unnecessary C-sections. You can see how it's all kind of connected. Okay, so this study is called the Oblige Study, and it is um, a 2020 randomized control trial. Now, disclaimer, it's still going on, so it's an ongoing trial, but I did want to, um, I wanted to clue you into it just so you know what's on the horizon, and also maybe it will prompt a conversation between you and your provider Um if this is an option for you, okay? So in this study, they actually looked at outpatient balloons. Um, so the Foley balloon or the Cook's catheter, um, it's a balloon that is inserted into your cervix and one of them has one the Foley balloon has one. It sits inside your cervix. We fill it up with saline and it presses down on your cervix. The Cook's balloon has two balloons. We fill them both with cervix. One is inside your cervix, pushing down on your cervix. One is outside your cervix, actually in your vagina, pulling down on your cervix. And so um, they both create that effacement and dilation um, that we were talking about. Now, I've heard all sorts of... Um, ranges of it falls out between two and three centimeters. It falls out around four centimeters. I will tell you anecdotally, I find that you are typically between three and four centimeters if your balloon falls out. If it needs to be taken out, usually you're not quite that far along and you might want to consider leaving it um, just a little bit longer. All right. Okay. So this oblige study, we're looking at the outpatient balloon versus inpatient prostaglandin. So you can come in, get a balloon placed, go home, or you can come in, get prostaglandins and stay. All right. Um, it was done in New Zealand. There were about 10 public hospitals that participated, um, and they had a stricter criteria of who they wanted to allow in to participate in the study, and um, it is as follows. Pregnant women who have a singleton baby, and baby needs to be head down, okay? So no breach and no twins. Um, these people need to be planning an elective induction of labor, after 37 weeks, so no preemies um, and no medical inductions, only elective inductions. It also means that these people need to be choosing to be induced. Now, remember, that was a huge issue with the ARRIVE trial because they had such trouble recruiting because so many people don't actually want to be induced. Um, and that was... Yeah, no, I'm not going to get on my soapbox about the ARRIVE trial, but that is, that's one of the biggest flaws is that because they had such a hard time recruiting, it certainly swayed that data in some regards, right? Um, okay, so this one, you need to be choosing an elective induction. Um, and then here's a list of other things that they um, have required of participants. Intact membranes, um, normal cardiology patterns in baby, a Bishop score less than seven, 
able to remain within one hour of the hospital. And also either that patient needs to be able to speak sufficient English or someone with them. Um, and this is obviously just for communication about all of, um, you know, the study and, and making sure that uh, their medical stuff gets transferred correctly. There's no hiccups there. Um, especially in studies like this, we want to make sure that that information is right so that when we try and make it applicable to the general public, um, we don't have just simple communication errors like that, right? Um, they also need to be okay with interventions like um, listening to baby's heart rate and a cervical exam for that Bishop score. So if you err on the side of low intervention pregnancy, not just low intervention birth, but you're taking a pretty hands-off approach to your pregnancy, maybe this study would not be appropriate for you to participate in. And then finally, they did um, exclude anyone that was trying for a VBAC, anyone who had experienced FGR, so fetal growth restriction, um, or um, cardiac anomalies in uh, their in their baby, in their fetus. Um, in this study, they also cited another small trial of outpatient versus inpatient balloon catheter induction of labor. And I thought it was really fascinating because the risk of C-section in that study reduced from 43% to 29%. I mean, that is a huge jump. So imagine, imagine if we combined some of these. We gave someone... Some sort of form of, of miso. I didn't look at any, I didn't find anything that looked at oral versus um, vaginal in terms of outpatient. It was oral versus vaginal, but that was in the hospital. And then all of the vaginal has been in different studies comparing different things and or um, outpatient, right? So we might want to look at vaginal versus oral in both settings, um, that would be helpful. But if we stacked these to use some sort of miso, get those prostaglandins going, and a balloon, get that cervical pressure there downwards, that heaviness to help that effacement that the prostaglandins are also doing, that downward motion to help create a little bit of cervical dilation. We sent those people home to get them comfortable, reduce their risk of um, infection. Don't subject them to the bright lights, the beeping noises, the constant disruptions, the unnecessary interventions of the hospital. Get them back in an environment that they're comfortable with. What? Maybe this is the answer. Maybe instead of just hooking people up to Pitocin, we actually try and closely mimic what the human body is doing. I think it's something to think about. It'll be really interesting to see how this study turns out. I'm very excited for um, the data and the results and the discussion to follow. So stay tuned. As soon as it gets published, I will do another little follow-up episode so that we can talk about the results of that. All right, on to our next study. And we're still, um, this is our final one, but we're still talking about outpatient ripeners. So going into the hospital, getting something to efface your cervix, ripen your cervix, make it more thin, make it more squishy and supple, 
and then going home, okay? This is our final one. It is a small study from 2021. It only had 21 participants. It had 28, but seven people could not be contacted for that follow-up portion, so they discarded them. Um, one other big flaw, other than the sample size and the follow-up, is that it was mainly white people. There was one black participant and one Asian participant. Um, so take this study as a grain of salt. It does still exist, and the data is there. It, it Just because it was a small study and not very racially representative doesn't mean it's bad data. It means that we need to replicate it more so that we can determine, is this applicable to many races? Is this applicable to the general population? Are there subsets of people that it works better for, worse for, does not need to be used, okay? Um, all right, they gave, um, they found that being able to go home and do the beginning part of your induction gave women the control and they enjoyed being induced. They enjoyed their induction story. So I just think that, again, small study, I get it, not, rep not representative of a lot of people. I totally hear you. But if we know that for 21 people, it changed their induction story, what are the chances that it would change the induction story for a lot of people, right? Okay, so you've got pretty good data that going in, getting a cervical riper, going home, ripening her, and going home is pretty evidence-based. Your job now is to look into the options that I just shared with you. Um, I'll link all the data. You can look through that. You can take it with your provider. And then go to your provider and talk about your preferences. Talk about the options. Find something that works for you but also makes them feel safe as well. All right. Okay. Moving on to our third option. Now, this one is very, very interesting. This is melatonin. Now, melatonin, I think it is very important to remember. And if you didn't know, melatonin is a hormone. Okay. A lot of people don't think about that. A lot of people may not know that. Melatonin is not we use it supplementally, but it is not a supplement, certainly not herbal. Um and it's not plant-based. It is a hormone. And so we want to understand how melatonin works in pregnancy. Um, there is some data out there that shows that it can help with placental homeostasis. It can help protect your baby's brain development. Um, a 2016 Cochrane review actually states that it is possible that melatonin given to a mother in pregnancy can help protect her baby's brain. Animal studies, including mice, rats, and sheep, have suggested that melatonin may be able to protect the developing human baby's brain from injury when given to the mother during pregnancy. So that's super, that is super um, promising. That's amazing to hear. Unfortunately, we don't have any good substantial evidence that proves this any further. Um, and even that Cochrane review says that more studies need to be done. There was, though, an article that was about a study that was done right here in Boston at Brigham and Women's, um, which obviously everyone holds Brigham and Women's to such high regards. Um, I thought it was amazing to see some of the research that they do. I think everyone knows it's a teaching hospital. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen any data come out of there. And so one of their recent studies, um, and again, they only did it on six 
people. Um, so a very, very small data set, one that arguably is not going to show very much because it is so small, um, but it may give us a good confirmation that we're in the right direction. It may give us good um, micro data that there's something here to dig into. And so this Brigham and Women's article looked at six late-term pregnant women that included nighttime ocular light exposure, women who were exposed to blue-green light, and women who were exposed to red light, okay? And they found that if you expose someone during the nighttime while they were in labor to blue or green light, they had lower levels of concentrations of melatonin and also fewer contractions. Now, we didn't see that same result when we looked at red light, okay? They stated that there was a significant positive relationship between the total amount of melatonin secreted and the total number of contractions during light exposure. So, amazing, right? Um they say that the results of this could facilitate the development of a light-based non-invasive method for treating preterm labor. Cool, right? <clears throat> if we are able to expose someone in preterm labor to blue or green light to slow down their their contractions, heck yeah, that's amazing. They also say that this data may be used um, to help induce labor by using pharmaceutical melatonin along with oxytocin, um, which is really, really cool. Um, one of the things that does irk me, though, is they did call it exciting preliminary data that could lead to a breakthrough. And, you know, no diss to Brigham and Women's, but I don't think that the idea that we should keep labor spaces dark and calm and without light is revolutionary. And I certainly don't think it is anything breakthrough. Um, it also bothers me a little bit that this was done in 2015, 16, 17. Um, you know, this, they, they literally found this data, this data originated within their halls and, um, their labor staff sometimes will come in, a lot of times will come in and flip on lights. And so it is, um, you know, it's a little disheartening for me to see that this data came from Brigham and Women's, but they have been, been able to implement it very well into practice. Um, but it is cool to see this data coming out. Um, you know, if you have a nurse or a provider who is constantly flipping on your lights or is telling you, our team has actually heard you aren't allowed to turn off the lights. Um, one time we were told that it was actually in triage at like 3 a.m. It was just wild things. If you have a practitioner, don't feel free to ask for a new practitioner, a nurse or, or a provider, but also let them know that in order to feel safe um, and progress your labor, you feel like you need an environment that is calm and grounding. And part of that is um, creating a dark space. Um, and you would just really appreciate if they could respect that. Most of the time they're going to say, yes, of course, absolutely. Um, so it is really cool to see this, that, um, you know, with melatonin, we see that impacting contractions and less melatonin in your system, the 
less contractions you're going to have. The more melatonin in your system, the more contractions you're going to have. And then we can see that impact of light on your melatonin production. This is also, it makes sense because most labors are going to spontaneously onset at night, um, which now has me thinking sometimes when you go and have a scheduled induction at a hospital, they will schedule you for late at night, 7 p.m., 8 p.m. We even had 10 p.m. inductions before. And it makes me wonder if they are trying to capitalize on your natural production of melatonin. Previously, before, you know, really kind of diving into this subject, I always thought it was just cruel. I was like, you are letting this person be up all day long. You know they're not going to nap. You know they're not going to rest the night before uh, because they have an induction the next day. Why bring them in when they are just worn out during the day um, only to be subjected to all the pokes and the prods and then, you know, the beeps and the sounds and the constant interruptions and disruptions and all those things in the hospital. But maybe it is to capitalize on uh, the melatonin. And if it's not, then it is just a really great perk that gets gets to happen. Alrighty. Um, I did also grab an article from fetalmedicine.org and it talked about melatonin overall was not shown to reduce C-section rates, but there is a potential benefit in a subgroup of first-time moms undergoing induction uh, via balloon ripening. So here it has popped up again that maybe we should be given something in addition to that balloon. That cervical pressure alone might not be enough for people, but if we could give them some prostaglandins, melatonin, miso, cervidil, cytotec, um, it might work a little bit better. Um, and then just to follow that up, uh, there is a study right now being conducted that is going to look at that kind of same thing, um, is that using melatonin with a balloon, uh, can it decrease our C-section rate? Uh, they have about 722 participants in the study right now. And again, when this is published, I will... Um, I'll do a follow-up episode to talk about the results and, and discuss that. Um, all right. And then one last article I did want to talk about in terms of melatonin for um, enhancing your body's receptivity to induction uh, was a really interesting study. And they looked at term births versus late and post-term births. And it said that it may be possible to tell who is going to go into labor on time, quote unquote, on time, like what is on time? But anyway, on time versus late with a biomarker of serum melatonin. And so they did blood draws on um, on women, on pregnant people, and uh, it was able to accurately predict who was going to go into labor soon-ish slash on time and who was going to be late and who was going to need um, some additional support, so i.e. an induction. So cool information coming out about melatonin. You can get it over the counter. It is obviously, you know, in terms of, I think, what people consider invasive, it's pretty non-invasive. You do it at your house, you pick it up at the CVS, you take it at night when you go to sleep, and voila. Again, it is a, it is a hormone, so 
You want to make sure that you are asking questions to your provider to make sure that that's appropriate for you. Um, and if they have not heard of the data behind melatonin as a way to increase success of induction, maybe you could share this information with them. All right. Wrapping us up is going to be our fourth option of induction methods that no one might have told you about up until this point, and that is evening primrose oil. Now, this can be inserted vaginally, um, and it may be a safe alternative to mesoprostol. It, it softens your cervix, and it reduces invasive induction methods like that mesoprostol or um, Cytotec or Cervidil, something more medicalized. Um, even in primrose oil is plant-based, right? Um, it improves the Bishop score as well. One of the other good things is it doesn't appear to have any negative side effects, which is awesome. Now, you do have two options when it comes to EPO, even in primrose oil. You can do it orally or you can do it vaginally. Most of the studies that have shown it to be successful and actually have an impact is done vaginally. Most of those also use 1,000 milligrams vaginally. Um, and again, found to not really have any harmful side effects, which is really, really promising and positive. I did want to touch on an article that um, talked about using evening primrose oil as a way to increase your Bishop score. And it showed that after using evening primrose oil, um, the group that did, they had a significantly higher Bishop score um, than the control group, than the group that did not use evening primrose oil. This particular article um, concluded that vaginal application of EPO at a single dose of 1,000 milligrams at 41 weeks gestation improved Bishop score and reduced post-term pregnancies. So very specific conclusion there, using it vaginally, that single dose of 1,000 milligrams, so not nightly, um, and also being 41 weeks gestation. Okay. All right. This last article I think is my favorite and I really geeked out on it. Um, and I don't know why it was my favorite. I think just all of the data and being able to very clearly dissect mesoprostol versus evening primrose oil because like I talked in that first article under evening primrose oil, it may be a safe alternative. So not necessarily to be used in conjunction with, but what if we could replace mesoprostol, a pharmaceutical, with even in primrose oil, something you can grab at Whole Foods, right? Um, okay, so in this article, they had pretty even groups of participants. They had 99 participants in the mesoprostol group and 101 participants in the even in primrose oil group. And... For the miso, they administered 25 micrograms, and for even in primrose oil, they did 500 milligrams. Um, now, both of these were done vaginally, okay? In terms of when you got your either miso or your EPO, 
to the time that you were six centimeters dilated, so i.e. active labor, what a lot of people consider active labor, in the miso group, it was 11 hours from giving the miso to getting to six centimeters. Now, in the evening primrose oil group, it was 17 hours from getting the evening primrose oil to six centimeters. So a little bit longer with that even primrose oil. You want to know my philosophy or what my my um, take on that is? I think personally it's because misoprostol is a pharmaceutical and EPO is not. I think that anytime we introduce a pharmaceutical, it's going to be metabolized and, and, and taken on by our body similarly, but probably in a faster way because, well, it's a pharmaceutical. All right. We know that plant medicine takes time. We know that natural healing takes time. We know that uh, pharmaceuticals usually do things a lot faster. That's that's their purpose. That's a literal goal of pharmaceuticals. So that's that's my perspective on that. Um, in the group of miso, they had about forty five minutes of pushing. So from ten centimeters dilated to baby in hand, about forty five minutes. In the EPO group, it was about thirty five minutes. So relatively the same. You shave off 10 minutes. I know to some of you, you're like, whoo, I'd shave off 10 minutes of anything. Um, I get it, but those are not clinic, uh, clinically significant. Those uh, numbers are very, very similar, both under an hour. Now, this is the kicker for me. In the MISO group, they had eight cases of hyperstimulated uteruses. In the evening primrose oil, zero. None. They had two more participants in that group and they had no cases of hyperstimulation. So maybe there is something to be said about those extra six hours that the EPO takes in terms of not overstimulating your uterus. Maybe that mesoprostol does things a little bit too fast. Now, one of the things I didn't love about this study is they also included or they allowed people to use um, oxytocin. And I, I understand it. It's not like you can put somebody through a study and get them partly through an induction and be like, well, now you're on your own. We had to use oxytocin in these. Um, I wanted to see it broken down a little bit better than I think it was in the study. But overall, out of 200 participants, they had 155 cases of oxytocin use. So we will never know if those hyperstimulated uteruses came from the miso or was it the miso-pitocin combination? You know, um, I think it's impossible to tell from this study, and that may be something that we should look into in the future. It'd be really interesting to see. Um, okay, and now let's wrap up with how many vaginal deliveries versus C-section. So we see in each group, and honestly, this is unfortunate because I think we're all expecting a big difference, um, but they were they were negligible differences. Again, not clinically significant here. Um, in vaginal Deliveries, we had 67 with the miso and 74 with EPO, so just a little bit more with the, the evening primrose oil. Again, proving what above we talked about, that 
it it can really help you achieve a positive induction and and um you know promote your goals prioritize your preferences of what a lot of people have which is vaginal delivery in terms of C-section, we saw 32 in the meso group and 27 in the EPO group. So again, a little bit less C-section. You're going to have that higher number of vaginal delivery with, um, with that EPO versus meso. So just something to consider. I personally always talk to our one-to-one -one clients about these options when it comes to induction, both elective inductions and medical inductions, just because you need a medical induction doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be rushed, right? Sometimes that is the case. Not only do you need a medical induction, but you also need it to be speedy. That's not always the case. Sometimes you have a medical induction, a medical necessary induction, and we can take our time and we have options and we can find an induction equation that is right for you, okay? Teaching you how to take control of your birth like this, teaching you how to understand not one option or two options, but all of your options, the good and the bad, the, the downsides and the upsides, the pros and the cons, the risk and the benefits, the good deep data, and also the shallow data on all topics is what I strive to do for you. That is how we are going to help you have a birth story that you love. Avoid iatrogenic birth trauma. Have an empowering labor that you feel supported and heard and loved and informed and totally in control. I know that that loss of control in labor, that unexpected, unplanned, you know, you don't know what you're walking into feeling is really unnerving and it is overwhelming. And that is what I do in the birth lounge. I help you squash all those feelings because we take all of the unknown and we make it known just like we did here. Induction can feel so scary, but if you know all of your options, it's not that scary. You're just picking out what options fit best with you in that moment in time to get you closer to your goal in a way that feels good and safe to you and a way that is collaborative with your provider, okay? You guys, the doors to the birth lounge open on September 4th. Do not miss your chance to join. This is one of our last launches of the year. So if you are having a baby before, between now and March of 2024, this is your doors open. The birth lounge is going to be non-judgmental, comprehensive childbirth education that helps put you back in control of your pregnancy. It puts you in the driver's seat. It teaches you how do you take the goals that you know you have, which is where you learn everywhere. You know what goals you have. You know your preferences. The problem is, no one teaches you actually how to get those met. How do you communicate those with your provider? How do you talk about options? What are the questions you should be asking? How do you navigate providers that aren't listening to you or respecting you or have different thoughts and recommendations than you? And how do you actually get your voice heard? How do you get your preferences and your goals met and respected? And that is what I teach you in the birth lounge. The birth lounge, you will not find any information 
that is trying to sway you to one way or the other. You will not find me trying to influence any of your decisions. It is truly exactly what this podcast just laid out for you. It is what is the data? What are the options? What are the risks and the benefits? What do you need to know about how it's going to impact your labor? What questions do you want to talk to your provider about? How do you understand the options that can be stacked and can't be? And then you should just choose what's best for you, all right? My goal is to help you have a birth that you love, that you feel in control with, and that you have a good relationship with your provider throughout. You don't feel bullied or coerced or manipulated or pressured into decisions that you don't want, right? That is how we create avoidable birth trauma. That's how people walk away with birth trauma from their labors that could have been avoided. I'm going to help you avoid that, all right? visit thebirthlounge.com. You can also visit me on Instagram. I'm always happy to chat about The Birth Lounge. You will have the chance from September 4th to September 9th to join The Birth Lounge. I cannot wait to see you in there. It truly is the best community on the internet. Okay, thanks for tuning in to the first episode of our brand new season. I'm so excited to get to hang out with you for the next upcoming weeks and tackle all of the topics that you wanted to hear. Until next time, bye y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.